Well, hey guys, Eric Nevins here, and I wanted to just say Happy New Year to you before the episode gets started. We'll get that going in just a moment, but I hope that your holiday season was full of joy and family and really wonderful for you. Um, I also want to ask you to go out to halfwaytherepodcast.com where you can find the archives for this show. You can see all the links and everything we do, but also you can sign up for the Halfway There Podcast mailing list. And when you jump on the mailing list, a couple things are going to happen. First of all, I will send you an email every week when the new episode is available. And second of all, this year, in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be launching the Halfway There Podcast group on Facebook. And I really would love to be able to send you an email to let you know that that's available and that uh, we're getting it, getting it rolling. I'd like to do some things. I'm working on it to figure out how we can share our stories better, talk about our stories, talk about our experiences with God. And uh, that's going to all be coming up here in the next few weeks. I'd love to have you be a part of it. But uh, until that gets launched and you can just find it right on Facebook, you can hop on the halfway there mailing list and we will uh, connect in that way. Okay, please do that and uh, enjoy this show. If you like it, share it with a friend. Here we go. Welcome to Halfway There. Uh, I'm Eric Nevins. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm excited to speak with our guest today. Uh, He's an old friend. We went to a seminary together and shared a lot of classes together, Um, although we didn't really hang out a ton, but we were were definitely friendly. And uh, and I love a baseball, too. We'll have to talk about that a little bit because the Rockies just made a big signing. But um, he is the ministry coordinator at Koinonia House, and um, how he got there, I think, is an interesting story. He's going to share that with us. With me today is Neftali Mata. Hi, Neftali. Welcome to Halfway There. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate you having me. I remember you being a big baseball fan because you guys used to go to the Rockies games, you and Josh, all the time. Yeah, we. Uh, that was proof that God actually did love me in a way because we were there for that Rocktober run in 2007. That's right. Actually got to go to the World Series. So that was a pretty phenomenal year all the way around. So, yeah, huge baseball fan. There you go. Huge baseball fan. If you ever needed a baseball spiritual formation connection, now you have it. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Anyway. Indeed. Cool. Well, tell us a little bit about what you're doing, and then we'll catch up and go through some of your story. Sure. So what I currently do is I work, as you mentioned, for a ministry called Coinia House National Ministries. We are located in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, ministry's been around for about 27 years. And what we do is we are a ministry that helps men and women that have been incarcerated get uh, discipled when they get out of prison. And so helping facilitate their integration into the local church. We also help equip the local church that's inside prison as well. So we're really a bridge ministry. Mm-hmm. And I do that in a couple different ways in my current role. Um, one of the things I primarily do is I help coordinate our radical time out ministry, which is a gathering of um, folks who've been affected by incarceration, their families, families with loved ones that are currently locked up, and folks who just want to serve. Uh, those folks. We meet in the western suburbs of Chicago every Thursday night, and we have about uh, 80 to 120 people that show up to that gathering, which is very unique um, because the location we're in is a very affluent community, and you just wouldn't expect that many people mm-hmm. to show up to a gathering like that. And then the other thing I do is um, I help run our discipleship house, which is how the ministry started 27 years ago and so four men up to four men who have been incarcerated can live in this house and have about a year and a half to figure out what it's like to be a christian on the outside because being a christian outside of prison is very different than being a christian inside prison so we help facilitate that connection to different local churches and everything else like that so those are my two primary ways but i also do a lot of jail visits and prison ministry and a lot of communications behind the scenes with different people and 
working with a lot of churches. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy what I do. Oh, good. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, what kind of things do you help them do to, you said, to become or to be a Christian on the outside? What does that, what does that look like? That's a great question. Um, a lot of things we take for granted as Christians that have grown up outside of prison. Uh, most of the time when you become a Christian, presuming you didn't grow up in a church, uh, you become a Christian and you're either going to the church that your friend brought you to Christ in or that you had your spiritual awakening in. Mm-hmm. Um, for men and women that have been locked up in prison, usually when they come to Christ, it's the first time they've taken their faith seriously or ever had an encounter with Jesus. And so one of the things they're always told is, find a church when you get out. Well, that sounds great and really intuitive, except when you're coming out of prison, not all churches are theologically safe, so not all churches are relationally safe. Right. So imagine coming out of prison and walking into a church and they say, go to the new the, the visitor center and you go to the visitor's area and they ask you why you came and you say you just came from prison and just imagine the average response of a volunteer in that particular situation, it right. may not be a great one. And how many times is someone going to do that? On top of that, even if you do find those places, every there's some unique challenges into getting out of prison, everything from getting your identification uh-huh. to finding a job, finding housing, um, learning how to cope with life and stressors in a different way than you have had before. It really just is, it's varied from person to person. So some people need just some initial stability and they zoom forward really, really well. Other people, it's two steps forward, one steps back, three steps forward, four steps back. It's, it's very herky jerky and it's very messy because you're usually mm-hmm. dealing with lots of different factors that are contributing to all that. So it, it's definitely different depending on, the people we're working with and depending on the churches we're working with. And uh, it's very unique. And the benefit of us being as small as we are is we get to be pretty individual in how we respond. We're not as programmatic as some bigger ministries, but does allow us to really get nitty gritty and, and messy with people and, and see what God does. I like to say that we're on the front seat of redemption oh, yeah. a lot, which is cool. I love that. I think, um, yeah, what you say about the their journey being not linear, it's not just straight ahead, it is, you know, forward and then back. The reality is that might just be more visible than it is in most of our lives where we have the same kinds of experiences, but we don't share them. Um, so I think it's true. Yeah, it is. So I think that's really powerful um just even to see that in a, you know, in a tangible way. Um, you know, it has something to share with us too, I think. So yep, absolutely. Yeah, let's go back and just talk through your story a little bit. I I I was so surprised to hear you. You got you were on the Phil Fisher podcast, which was pretty cool. I knew that uh, when I saw the name Neftali Mata, I was like, "There's not more than one of those guys out there." So it's got <laughs> it's got to be you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was that was that was the benefit of doing ministry in Wheaton. Somebody <laughs> heard me speaking of my story and thought I would be great for Phil's show. So oh, that's cool. that, was, that was that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, so how I got there is and this ministry is really weird, um, unique is the best way to put it. So I grew up in a Christian family. My parents both loved Jesus. I don't remember my life outside of church. I don't remember my life without Jesus, quite honestly, because I made my decision to follow Jesus really young. I couldn't point to a day or time. I just basically always remember loving Jesus. And so I was was homeschooled. My mom was my primary Bible teacher. Um, She was really good at it. Um, My dad encouraged my love of scripture and participating in church and we we were homeschooled as well so we got to spend a lot of time with family so well we moved a lot and so I got to experience a lot of different churches as well and growing up I just really kind of owned my faith I was probably that guy that 
really annoyed other kids in Sunday school because I always had the right answers to the Bible questions. I was always in Awana, and I was the guy that was killing Awana. You won the um, Bible drill, and I won. I won probably every award from like kindergarten to like sixth grade. It was kind of ridiculous looking back on it. Anyway, I I I did all that, and um, eventually felt a calling to ministry. By the time I got into my freshman sophomore year of college and decided to go to seminary and life had been pretty good up until that point in seminary life was even better. Um, I really loved seminary and seminary loved me the best I could tell. Um, Eric can vouch for this, but there's actually a painting that I modeled for that I have a halo around my head at the seminary. So yes. <laughs> um, I, that was I did not know they were putting a halo around my head when I modeled for that, for the record. So, um, <laughs> but it's there. So I am a Protestant icon, literally. Um, so I, I love that. I did, I did really well at seminary and my church that I was a part of in college was, uh, wanted me back on staff and I had a passion for multicultural, multi-ethnic church based ministry. So I was happy to say yes to that church because it was predominantly African-American. So I went back to Springfield, Illinois, became an associate pastor there. And um, when I started doing ministry there, I met a young lady who liked me and I liked her. And I had done some initial asking around and everyone thought this was a potential. So I pursued her and she agreed and we dated and, after a while, I got very serious and proposed to her. And during that time, there were some small red flags in that relationship that I really didn't pay as much attention to as I probably should have and kept doing associate pastoral ministry and and everything on the outside looked like it was going okay. But if the closer you came to my inner circle, which wasn't that many people, the more you could tell things were just not going well and eventually while we were engaged we started getting in these really bad cycles of arguments and fighting and eventually it became bad enough where it got physical and physical enough that the police got involved and I ended up being taken to jail overnight and I was devastated but not devastated enough so I just thought you know what I'm just not, I'm not trying hard enough. I'm not focused enough and I need to just step back and I have some character things I need to deal with, obviously. So I had never, I'd never experienced my own depravity. I think that's a downside. One of the few downsides there are to growing up in a Christian home. And I love growing up in a Christian home and I would not have traded that for anything Yeah, is you just don't know what depravity looks like in your own life. You see it in other people. But I've had the grace of God pushing in my life for my entirety of my life. So I did not know what to do when that depravity starts surfacing in some very ugly ways. And so I did what yeah. I feel many people do is I ignored it and tried to push through it. And like, I'm a Christian, I'm a seminary grad, I can fix this. So that's what I did. Mm. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. And I, so I want to go back to your childhood a little bit and talk about that because mm -hmm. you, so you were the golden child. You were the kid that everybody wanted to be in it, like in a one or someplace. Right. And you mentioned that you were, uh, go ahead. I, I don't know if kids wanted to be me, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> that parents wanted them to be like me. So sure. Well, that's probably more accurate. <laughs> I said that as as being a B student, right? So <laughs> I was the one who who tried to memorize my verses like the night of or whatever. But um, I I was never that guy. But you, but there was always somebody who was like the they they just did everything and they did it really well. But I'm curious yeah. about your so your experience of the Lord because you kind of talked about that. You you know you always knew the Lord. You always you always had him kind of in your life. Um, and those are all positive things. Can you just describe that for me like a little more into 
sure. where you think that I, what that built into you. I I think I think in my life in particular, um, my parents were doing a really good job of this, this instilling character and and trying not to take anything for granted. But somewhere got lost in translation. I started understanding those character desires and that desire to love Jesus and to do things the right way and everything else. Somehow I got that mixed up and I internalized it into a way of living my life that I had to live up to people's expectations. And if I didn't live up to those expectations Mm -hmm. that I was doing my Christianity wrong and the expectations are pretty clear in scripture, what you're supposed to do. So if you know scripture, like I do, that starts becoming really daunting, really fast. Like, Oh man, yes. I can't, I don't know how I can do this, but I need to do this because uh, I'm a Christian and that's what Christians are supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a guy of integrity. And um, what ended up happening instead of cultivating a deeper inner character I got more concerned about cultivating the outward appearance of deep character. And the problem was I didn't realize what I was doing. I actually thought I was developing deeper character. I was just doing really good at showing what I thought a Christian was supposed to look like. And um, again, that was not the intention of any of the churches I was a part of or my parents. But somehow I interpreted everything and misinterpreted it as this is what a Christian looks like, does, is, and you just can't have any big problems. You can have small problems. You can have, you know, you can have, you can lose your temper maybe, but you, but you shouldn't have uh, kids out of wedlock or or sex outside of marriage, or you shouldn't do drugs or drink, but you know, there's other things like it becomes this really weird thing of do this, don't do that. And, and not that any of those in and of themselves were wrong, because obviously premarital sex and having babies out of wedlock and, and drugs and alcohol and, and getting into fights and those things aren't great things to do for anybody. But when you're thinking that's the point by accident, that's not a good thing because you're not really, you're not really letting the Holy Spirit sink down deep into your heart and doing some real work on your soul, wherever that is. And for me, I just cared more about what people thought of me than I realized. Um, I would have never described myself as that person, though, because I didn't think that's who I was. I thought I was living for Jesus to the best of my capability. And the sad thing was I was. Yeah. um, Yeah. Which, which I think is part of the, part of the point, you know, we, we do the best we can with what we have. And um, I, I think it's interesting. So we talked a little bit about why we do this show and i think one of the reasons is that disconnect between what we know we should be and who we actually are is an experience and um i think more people have that experience that you're sharing than we probably want to admit um and so i'm glad that you shared it you know i think that certainly was some of my experience as well um but that's that's definitely it's out there. It's a, it's a thing that happens. And I don't, I don't know if it is because, um, I think we all want to do the right thing. We all want to set, set up our kids with, you know, a godly idea of what it is to, to follow Christ. But we don't always include the sort of hard, the really hard things in that. And I, you know, I'm not sure, I don't know, maybe you have some insight into why you think we do that now or why you did that. Or not, the, you know, it's okay, it's a hard I, question. Yeah, what, it's a very hard question. One of the things I am wrestling with is, I'm still to this day wrestle with it, because that, that people-pleasing tendency in me hasn't gone away completely. It's, it's much smaller than it was, and uh, by God's grace, it's, it's something I am able to crucify every day. But the, I think the hard thing is, we want to we want to present the 
the greatness of God. And so we talk about all these radical transformations people go through, but we don't do a very good job of talking about the messiness from where we started to where someone is. And we don't allow someone to be uh, a sinner mm-hmm. and still accepted uh, into the, into the body. Uh, what's true or not is up for debate because I'm I, I have found in my own story that the people of God are much more willing to accept you for your sins and your flaws if you let them mm. then you're probably giving them credit for it Interesting. because we all experience we all have that experience of not measuring up um, but there are a lot of places where you can share your sin or you, where you're failing and you're not received with the grace first and ways to partner with you and how do we get you from here like not accepting accepting you for where you're at but still teaching you how to press forward and i'm not sure i'm honestly not sure how to best do that besides knowing that i think i think one of the things i would do differently in my life is not try to push past grace and love as fast as i did and Mm. and churches i think are afraid to talk about grace and love too much because that's like the simple parts of scripture. We need to talk about the meat and the depth of scripture. But I also think that if we're not, if we don't realize how truly loved we are, at least this is how it works for me. It wasn't until I realized that God really loved me, that Jesus really loved me no matter what I did, that it was easier to face the evil that was in my own life and go, yeah, but this, this desire to people, please, this anger, this, violence that's in my own soul i don't have to ignore it i can i can look at it and acknowledge it's there and not be afraid that god isn't gonna love me anymore or that his people won't love me anymore so for me that was that was that was the most important thing but we are i think we're just too safe as american churches in general we want everything to look right smell right be right there's nothing wrong with that. When we like excellence, there's nothing wrong with that. Those things should be on some level what we strive for. But if mm. if it's not undergirded in love and real love, and the only way that can happen is if you're loving people that are clearly messed up um, right. and making a point to do that, then it's just hard to live that life. But those are, those are my musings. I'm not sure there is a right answer because that's going to look different person to person. I think that's one of the biggest problems. It's easy to make things look right because you know what they need to look like. Right. And how do we get those outcomes? Loving someone that has a drug addiction or that is suicidal or someone that's just come out of prison or someone that has a struggle sexually is really messy. And there's no guarantee that loving them that they're going to change. But that doesn't stop God from loving me. So I don't. I don't know the right answer there. I just know that outcome, what we think an outcome needs to be doesn't necessarily, we might be wanting the wrong things instead of just loving mm-hmm. people and encouraging them to love Jesus more and letting Jesus change them. We want to be the change agents. And I've learned in my prison ministry and my own life that I don't change anybody. I'm really bad at changing people. And if I do change people, I'm probably messing them up. So Wow. That's what I. That's awesome. That's what to, I found out. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think you're right. We we want to be the the people who do the thing. I've also come to the conclusion that church by church, it probably needs to look different based on what God's calling us to yeah. do and the people that He's calling us to serve, and um, and that's okay. Um, it's hard to you know in a world where we just want to emulate the most successful people, we need to not be afraid to switch it up. Okay, so thanks for all that. I think that's a that was a little side road, maybe, but I think it gives some insight into the experience that you were having as a you know as a young young man um, between your what you were expecting and kind of the people pleasing thing. Um, and I I find it fascinating because I think it's like I said, it's a bigger issue than probably we know. So you got married and you said you had some some issues. And take us into that that experience and what you were feeling about yourself and God uh, during those that period of time. 
Sure. Well, like I said, I even before we got married, we had a domestic violence incident when we were engaged, like a few weeks before we were planning on getting married. And what's really sad is now that I'm healthy and way past this, I look back on that and thought, man, even if someone outside might come to me with my same scenario and say, this is what happened, what do you think I should do? I'd be like, run. Like, what are you thinking? You don't have to think about this anymore. Yeah. But because it was my situation, I was, I was convinced that, no, I need, to, I need to see this through. Love never fails. I, I, I can't fail. And this re- ending this relationship would be a failure. And, um, and I pushed through that and we eloped a few weeks later, which we had already planned on doing for a side note I don't want to get into, but that was also bad decision-making. And so me and my wife get married. I had already stepped down from my pastoral role at the church. The church was being very gracious to me and they're keeping me on as, as office support staff and working on a path of restoration. And uh, when we're married, a few months later, we had another incident, except it was worse. And that one made the local police blotter. And for a guy that's a people pleaser, you can imagine how embarrassing that is. Yeah. Um, you can imagine how embarrassing it is anyway, um, even if you don't have a people pleasing problem. Right. And so I'm out and everyone at the church knows. Before that, the leadership of the church knew and other key people in my life knew, but it wasn't public knowledge, except that Nestle was going through some really rough things and, and he wasn't going to be a pastor anymore, but no one knew exactly what that was. And now everyone knew what it was. And I, how, how did that, so embarrassed and mortified. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I was going to ask. How did that feel? And what are you thinking about what was going to happen or kind of where you, your place in the world? Well, I knew I couldn't be on the church. I couldn't be, a, I couldn't be on the church staff anymore. I knew I couldn't, um, even though I wanted to be. And that's, that's really hard where you know that your calling is supposed to be in ministry and you know that your own decisions have made that impossible. And there's no one to blame but yourself. That's disheartening and embarrassing and isolating. And then knowing that you're failing at your marriage is disheartening and burying uh, and isolating and that everyone in your church knows that you are a guy that would occasionally preach messages and now you're in the police blotter, that's embarrassing and disheartening. And uh, I just felt so alone um, and isolated. Uh, And it wasn't solely because the church didn't handle anything well, like there were people in that church that wanted to embrace me. I just couldn't let them because I didn't trust that they would actually love me. If you knew all the inner turmoil I was going through, all the, the ugliness I was wrestling with, why would you love me? I don't even love me right now. And I was just feeling like God was really disappointed with me and really far away mm. because Christians don't do what I just did. You just don't. Like, especially Christians... I didn't grow up in an abusive family that had both parents in their life, in your life. And you went to church and you know, all the Bible verses and you went to seminary who does this. Uh, so I was feeling like a failure, but I didn't have that much time to think about it because I had to kind of go in survival mode and find a job. And eventually I decided to move back to Denver, convince my wife to come with me. Um, Cause I thought, you know what? put this stressful season behind me, change places, go back to Colorado where things were good and I'll figure it out. And so went back and my seminary pastor, I told him sort of what was going on, but my biggest problem was I didn't ever lay out all my cards. I would only hand out as many cards as I felt like someone needed and only give them so much information. So wasn't lying about anything, but I was hiding a lot. And so I came out there and for about eight months was doing okay. I was seeing a counselor and working with my pastor and working a lot of hours trying to survive and trying to get the marriage back together. And eight months later, we had an even worse fight. And um, that was 
that one was really bad. Uh, the direction that it was going, someone would have ended up in the hospital or ICU, but by God's grace, they didn't quite get that far. And I felt like I remember feeling like I was peering over the pit of my own depravity. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit pulled me away from that. And I disengaged from that fight really slowly, but eventually did. And that evening, I just remember feeling sick, like physically violently ill at myself and the choices I made. And that was the night I decided, you know what, I can't fix myself because if I could, I would have by now. It had been over a year of this chaos in my life and I was sick of it. So I was like, I'll let anybody know. And so I confessed to my church and another good friend. My church came in and pulled my wife somewhere else. And a few weeks later, the police came to talk to me and asked me if I knew why they were there. And I said, I, I believe so. And I told them everything, which was legally naive and stupid of me because the police do keep their promises. They can and will use everything against you. And so <laughs> right. um, I, after I finished giving them my statement, uh, one of the officers put the, the cuffs on me, read my charges and then said, but I know that you're a good guy. And I'm thinking, I don't feel like a good guy right now. And then they take me to the jail. Uh, and then I'm at the jail and I'm like, I got to call my grandma now. Um, Cause she was the person that was with lives in uh, Colorado. So call her and I'm in tears and having to let her know I'm in jail. And so my family comes in to see me in cuffs and uh, our mutual friend, Josh Permy was there to oh, see and support me. And I'm just like, um, and I'm feeling awful still awful. Like, how can I be here? And, and what have I done? And I'm, I'm in jail and this was not where I thought I, my life would be a few years after seminary. Um, you know, and I'm, I am, I am in, I have shambles left. I have nothing going for me. And I remember my mom visiting me and asking me, well, who do you want me to tell? And I'm like, tell anybody, tell everybody I'm tired of hiding. And I, I, I was at least humbled, like truly humbled finally, but I was not sure what, where to go from here. And I wasn't sure, I was still struggling with uh, Jesus and the Lord and, and, and feeling like, how could they love me? Was I even a Christian? I definitely couldn't have been called to ministry. That was where my head was at. I definitely mm. could have been called to ministry. Yeah. I don't even know if I was really a Christian. Maybe I was just faking it this entire time. Because um, Christians don't do these things. And within my first month there, it was really close to Easter. And so I went to the East, Easter chapel services. And So I'm sorry, just to clarify. Um, so, so you ended up going to jail. for was there Was there a period of time? I was in jail for 16 months, uh, ultimately, and I didn't, and it didn't count for anything in a legal sense because I got probation eventually, but um, my lawyer put it this way. Uh, he said, Mr. Mata, I've never had a client like you. I have like 12 letters of character reference on your behalf already, and I haven't even met you yet, and I can just see what was happening from the police reports, that you're a man of integrity who has been taught to own your mistakes and, and face them. Like, that's great. Except legally, that was the worst thing you could have done. Right. And, um, and so that's when I knew I was going to be in jail for a long time while they're sorting this out. And um, so I'm there and I'm just thinking, I, I had actually mentally made peace with the fact, maybe this is the best place for me uh, being locked up as a whole. Like maybe Maybe I'm just not meant for society. And so maybe this is where I'm supposed to be. I really had those thoughts going through my head. So wow. I'm, I am, I am, I'm in this spot right now and not knowing, not understanding the love of God in my life or the forgiveness that's available to me. I mean, I intellectually know these things are true. Right. I mean, I know it's the right answer, but I'm not feeling or experiencing it at all. And I'm, and I'm just, feeling so distressed. And so I walk into this Easter service, not knowing how long I'm going to be locked up, not knowing what's going to happen in my relationships, not knowing 
that time it was still early enough that I wasn't quite sure how my community was going to receive me. And so I walk in to the service just feeling miserable. And the other reason why I was miserable is I'm looking around at all the people I'm locked up with and none of these people really seem like they knew Jesus before, except maybe like a handful, like a very small number knew Jesus beforehand. And most of these people just became Christians while they were in there. And so it's just like, man, like I must be awful. These people didn't know the Lord. So that makes sense why they're locked up with me. Holy cow. And so I'm in this service and the guy comes in and he says, you know, my granddaughter is in my in the Easter production at my church, but I'm here with you instead because I'm here to let you know that Jesus loves you. And he said, he loves you whether you've been in the streets making poor choices your entire life or if you grew up in the church your entire life, made a series of bad choices and said, I got you here. I'm here to tell you Jesus loves you. And he started looking and locking eyes with every guy in the room and saying, Jesus loves you. By the time he got to me, I was in tears and bawling and Falling in prison is not, or jail is not necessarily a great way to go, but I didn't care. And I was just broken. And I just really felt like the love of God in a way I don't think I felt since I was a little kid. And, um, and that, that moment was pivotal for me because from that point on, my entire experience changed. I, I realized that. Well, I am a Christian, and I actually get grace now, and so I'm in that jail, and I'm just sitting around. I'm like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm here for who knows how long. What do you want me to do? And so I started Bible study with a guy, and then I went from two people to lots of people, and um, Denver Seminary was amazing to me, Dr. Blomberg, Dr. Delaire, Dr. McFarland. Um, Dr. Winnig, um, Elodie all came and visited me while I was locked up. I had pastors coming to visit me. I had former seminary friends coming and visiting me that were in the area. I had people writing me. I just really felt the love of God's people while I was locked up. And, uh, and I was doing real, it was interesting. I was doing a lot of pastoral ministry while I was locked up in the jail and and then I ended up becoming a bilingual, multicultural Bible study that a third of my section of the jail was in. And I was teaching these guys stuff I learned in seminary about how to understand the Bible and oh, yeah. how to teach things themselves. And it was <clears throat> it was a really cool experience. And well, well that's fascinating it, because like it, like you said, you had all those all those people may have come to Christ later. But you had all this background. You could totally do that and do the teaching and kind of help deepen their faith. Yeah, it was it was nuts because I didn't want to look like I was trying to run anything. So another guy was teaching initially, and then I stepped in on one day, and I had four of the brothers in that jail came to me and said, why aren't you teaching? I said, well, because this guy's been here longer, and I don't want to look like I'm taking over. And they're like, no, you need to be teaching. I said, well, I'll talk to the guy. And I talked to the guy and he's like, I don't know why you haven't been teaching this earlier. You clearly know this more than me. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I did. And um, it was, it was interesting because one of the things that I was struggling with is how to, how could I be called to vocational ministry and have done the things I've done? And was I ever supposed to be in vocational ministry? And then when I knew I was getting out at you know, the end of 16 months, um, around and I'm like, man, look at what God's done here. I it's a multicultural, bilingual Bible study, and people have come to Christ, people have recommitted their lives, people have deepened their faith. And I was just like, okay. And it was something even the deputy in the jail recognized. I remember when I was walking out, one of the guys was like, the deputies was like, Father, are you getting out today? And I said, yes, sir. And he's like, well, who's going to be a pastor over there now? Wow. I'm like, don't worry. Someone, someone's already tapped in my place. And, and so that guy was leading the stuff after I left. And I don't, I don't know if it was still going on. 
but I just know that God, God's grace let me know, okay, my ministry gifting is still there and the calling is still there. It's just not going to look like what I thought it was going to look like anymore. So I walk out of jail and this is when my world really changed from a ministry and, re, and, 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 uh, relational standpoint because I knew getting out after being convicted of a crime was going to be tough and I ended up leading to a, a charge called felony menacing and so I had a felony on my record and so I've never had a problem finding a job before. I interview well, have a good resume, have great references and I couldn't even get interviews initially because I had to check that box. Right. And then the times I could get the interviews, they would do the background checks and I'd be cast aside. And I remember having to get desperate enough that I was applying to anything and I was still not getting anything. I didn't even have my set high to, I didn't have my, I knew I had to prove myself. So I didn't even have like ridiculous standards. I was trying to get any sort of job. I knew it was going to be hard getting out of prison or jail with a felony on the record, I had no idea how hard it was actually going to be. And so it took me a while to find a job. I actually ended up needing help through our seminary friend and Greek professor, Elodie, talked to a guy who owned a Chick-fil-A and he was willing to hire me. And that took three months of me searching and interviewing and being rejected. I still had to do counseling and and pay off court fines and fees and, and all sorts of stuff uh, that was required of me because of my conviction. And I just realized all these guys I'm leaving behind, when they get out, they don't have the benefits I do. I, I, have, a, I have an education. I have a work history. I have people that have my back. I have a safe family to live with where I don't have to worry about paying rent right away or at all. And I'm just recognizing these guys have none of that. I even had a church home to go back to. Like I didn't have to even figure out where my church was going to be. Um, these guys are going to have to do everything. And so I realized, I don't think the church is ready for this at all. And so how do we, how do we think about this? And so, uh, and around, and around that time, um, Randy McFarland, who's the dean of Denver Seminary, he oh, yeah. knew Manny and Barbara Mill, who are my bosses now, but he knew them because of one of his um, ministries that he was a part of, uh, World Venture, and they were on the board together, and uh, he talked to them about me, and Manny, who founded the ministry that I work for now, Coinia House, he, he reached out to me and was just coaching me through some of the things that I was going through right now. And I just realized the guys I'm leaving behind, I, they're going to have to, they need, they're going to need help too. And how do we do this as a church? And that's, that's kind of how this all started. Um, hmm. I, I really knew that there were people that were going to need help. And if they're Christians and work how do we help our brothers and sisters when they get out? And so that kind of started me thinking through, well, what would that look like in a local church body and, and everything else like that? So, um, yeah, that, that, that for me was a whole new challenge. And then just even thinking through my own emotions, because I spent 16 months in jail, basically as a state paid monk, I mm. read my Bible I prayed, I talked to people about God and occasionally I watched some TV or play cards, but I, I was pretty much a monk and I realized that being a Christian in jail is really easy in a lot of ways. It has its difficulties, don't get me wrong, but you know exactly where all your temptations are coming from every day. Yeah. The people you don't get along with, the, what's coming on through the TV, the books you could get in the library. And conversation, sheltered environment. So your faith grows in a lot of ways really deeply because you have a lot of time. And then getting out of that, 
you don't have as much time to read your Bible or pray, and you're not really close to a brother physically. Mm, right. um, so you can't just grab someone saying, I have a, I'm having a bad day. Could you pray with me? One of the beautiful things about being a Christian in an incarcerated situation is if there's other Christians in your area of the jail or prison, you're literally doing life with them side by side almost the entirety of the day. So if you're discouraged, someone's right there to pick you up and pray with you, vice versa. It's a really kind of a beautiful thing, honestly. But wow. I wouldn't suggest people experience that the hard way like I did. But there is there is a surprising benefit to that. And so when you come out, that's that's you have to teach people how how to support one another out here. So uh, I was just thinking through all these things and really just deepening my understanding of how much God actually loved me. And therefore I knew how much he loved everyone I left behind and also how much the church needed them and, and vice versa. And I was, I was just, I had so many ideas and I had no idea what to do with them. That's kind of where my initial year out first year out of jail was like. And so I had a blessing of, uh, uh, Manny and Barbara, uh, the guys, uh, the, the couple that founded Koinonia House, they came out to Denver to train a church. So I got to meet them face to face. They prayed with me. I stayed in regular contact with them. And then after about a year and a half, they asked me if I would be interested in coming on board with them in Wheaton. And I initially didn't want to because mm. I was connected. I, I felt pretty safe and connected at my church. And I had support out here. And I'm like, I don't know that many people in Wheaton. Actually, I know no one in Wheaton besides these people. And what if I fail again in yeah. ministry? Like, it only been a couple years. And uh, for your listeners, at that particular time, I was still hoping to pursue reconciliation with my wife. And I was pursuing that to the best of my ability. Um, eventually, uh my wife and I are no longer together um, through pastoral counseling and a few other things. It was, it was time to just, uh, she had been asking for a divorce, but she wouldn't follow through with it. And I didn't want to divorce her. And eventually they asked, my church asked me to grant her the divorce and, and, and to do that. And uh, that, that was also another thing you want to talk about, uh, people pleaser. I have like every strike against me now for an evangelical <laughs> kid. Uh, right. I have, a, I have, I have jail. I have a divorce. I, I, uh, I, I, uh, fall from public ministry. Like it's, it's, I, 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 I've done pretty well for myself in, in, in knowing that, uh, having to know that God loves me in spite of my and my flaws yeah. and I've caused others. So but but all yeah. of that, Neftali, I have to say. Uh yeah, okay, living up to expectations, maybe uh not, but finding and having yourself firmly rooted in the love of God and being able to share that with other people in a super meaningful way, you get an A plus because that's I mean that's that's what you're doing. You're sharing <laughs> your story here. You're sharing it with the people that you're ministering to every day. Um, you know, I, th I thought it was really fascinating that during your time in in jail, that you were you were still you, right? You were you needed to receive yep. grace, but you were you have all this training and you have all this uh, pastoral care for people, and so you you did those things because that's who God made you to be, and uh, and it's. It doesn't surprise me at all that God led you then to a new ministry where you could do that, and uh, it took some hard things to get there. But um, sounds to me like you're right where God wants you. Would you say that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm where God wants me to be in a couple ways, but I think the biggest way is just trusting that He can use my sin and my pain for redemption and restoration. Cause I remember one of my prayers when I was in jail was Lord, this is so painful. 
please use it for everything it's worth because I don't want to be here again. Mm. And he's taken me up on that prayer. Um, because one of the reasons why uh, Manny and Barbara were interested in hiring me was because most people who are incarcerated don't want anything to do with prison or jail ministry once they get out. And it makes sense because why would you want to be constantly reminded of a really bad set of choices in your life? Uh, yeah. Most of us don't want to walk around with our sins front and center. Me in this ministry, I, my sin and my choices and, and the evil I perpetrated have to be front and center. Um, it's, it's, part of, it's part of the reason why I'm there, but it's also one of the ways God gives hope to people. And I, I don't know. Because I know how to, I know how to act in a church. Like if you don't know me really well and it's just surface level conversation, you would never know my background unless you, you know, either Google searched it really deeply or, or someone told you, but I know how to play the game, quote unquote. And I wouldn't have to have that part of my testimony front and center all the time. And I don't know what my life would have been like if, if I could have kept hiding it. Um, I'm glad I don't have to know. I'm glad God made me and put me in a position where I have to just rely on him that his grace is sufficient. His ability to work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose is real. And that I have to rest in the fact that he loves me, um, that he really loves me and he really loves everybody else. And I, for that reason alone, selfishly, I know I'm where I need to be, but God's been able to use yeah. that my 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 pain and my sin for His glory in other people's lives as well, and that's truly humbling. It really is. Yeah, which is the point. That's that's what He does. He's really good at His job. God <laughs> is really good at His job. Amen. Amen. Well, Natalie, thanks so much for sharing. Uh, your story with us. So if people want to see a picture of you with a halo, it's actually your Twitter profile picture. Hopefully you don't change that tomorrow, but that's, that's out there. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes at halfway there podcast.com. Uh, do you want to mention your website? Or- sure. If people are interested in, in what we're doing, uh, to see the Thursday night ministry we do, if you go to radical timeout.info, you can kind of get a feel for, what we do. Um, also, if you uh, go to khnm.net, there's the website outdated, but there's some information there that will tell you about what we do. And uh, if you want to get a hold of me, either via Twitter or you can email me. Eric, I'm sure, can put my email in the show notes as well. I love to minister to someone that's been incarcerated or their families or any way to just even give encouragement to anybody, I'm more than willing to do that. But uh, uh, what we what we do is we just help bridge the gap between the prison inside prison, uh, the, the church inside prison, and the church outside of prison. And that's all we're trying to do. So I enjoy it. Uh, I get to be on the front seat of redemption every day. It's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Neftali, thanks for being Ed halfway there. And I appreciate you sharing your story. And uh, God bless you on all of your ministry endeavors. Thank you, Eric, and thanks for having me, and God bless you, too, as you continue to have conversations with people and get people encouragement through the stories of God working through his people. It's pretty awesome. Amen.